Hi everyone, welcome back to Where to Go Next, a show where we talk about where we come from, what it's like to live abroad, and where we want to go next. Today, I am so honored to have my friend, role model, and mentor on the phone, on the line today. Um, and I'll go let get good. I'll go ahead and let her introduce herself. Um, the question that we normally ask Sid is, "Where are you from, and where are you now?" You can take that in the broadest of meanings. Okay. Well, hi. I'm very happy to be here. Um, my name is Sydney. Where am I from? So I think, strictly speaking, I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. It is my home base. It is still where I call home. If I say I'm going home, I'm going to St. Louis. So that's definitely where my heart is or my family is, and they're most important to me. So that's my home base. And where I am now is I'm still in my home and my childhood home. <laughs> and it's actually, I don't know, it's really interesting for me because I left home when I was 18. When I went to university, I never lived at home after that. So this is the first time that I've spent a substantial amount of time in my childhood home with my mother and my brothers back from Santa Fe and we're all here. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been really nice actually to have this time and to be in the house as adults and we've done, well, my brother primarily, but cleaning the basement and going through pictures and just reflecting mm -hmm. on our childhood. And it's been really kind of a wonderful and beautiful blessing of, you know, this craziness of coronavirus. Well, I know before this, Sid, you were somewhere else, very, very far from St. Louis. Um, can you give us a little bit of a trajectory, like where you've been in the past decade since you left home at 18 and like where you've been most recently? Because I think that's what immediately came to mind when I thought of the show and bringing you on. Okay. So yeah, I left when I was 18. I moved to North Carolina for university and I stayed there for five years. And then I moved to New Jersey for one year after I graduated. Um, I ran track professionally and I joined a professional track team that was based out of one of the most exciting places, and I say this with all the sarcasm in the world, New Brunswick, <laughs> New Jersey. There's nothing going on in Central Jersey, but <laughs> this training team was this this team was based there. So I moved there for a mm -hmm. year. Didn't really get along with the coach, and was having a hard time adjusting. Left New Jersey and joined another team in Boston. Lived in Boston for I think four four years. Yeah four or five years and then wanted something new in my life and I say that in the broadest sense I just wanted something new and something different and I moved to Ethiopia um, and so I live in Ethiopia for about a, a, a year and a few months I had one month where I, was, where I was in the U.S. for a little bit and I went back to Ethiopia starting in February 2020 and then I most recently left from Ethiopia, from Addis, I was based in the capital, and came back to the U.S. because of coronavirus and uh, mandatory evacuation from the organization that I worked for. So I'm curious to learn about what made you want to go to Ethiopia and just how did this change happen? Yeah, it's kind of wild, actually, when I tell people. Like, they really don't understand. Like, we hydrated up here. So I was working, <laughs> I, so I was working in the private sector, and I was working in product marketing for a large e-commerce company. And I loved what I did day to day. I really enjoyed my job, but I didn't enjoy 
my company and the values that we purportedly stand for and where my work was actually going. And so I decided I wanted something new. I wanted something different. And simultaneously, I went through a very bad breakup and was like, I need to get the heck out of here. I need something new because I cannot continue along this track of this and this sadness pit that I'm in right now. This has got to change. And so I started looking for opportunities that allowed me to continue what I love to do on a daily basis, which is working in business, working in new product development, doing product market fit, while also providing some greater social impact and greater good. And, you know, I know social entrepreneurship is kind of a buzzword, but that was really kind of the experience I was hoping to invite into my life. And I wanted to use my efforts to promote and just to further some of these companies. And I um, managed to find a fellowship with TechnoServe, thanks to Leilani, actually. She sent me the link and said, oh, I found this. I don't really have the work experience, but I think you'd be a great fit. And I applied and lo and behold, I was selected and matched. So they do a matching process. I was a match to a fellowship working with um, honey exporters in Ethiopia. And I just packed up my bags and I was like, see you later, <laughs> moving to Ethiopia. <laughs> so why did you choose Ethiopia among all the possibilities? Yeah, it was, I mean, honestly, I didn't know anything about Ethiopia. And when it came time to select where I wanted to go in the application, because you could sort of, you know, give a preference to at least geographic areas. The only thing I said was I want to be in the continent of Africa. And somehow I ended up in Ethiopia and forever, for whatever reason that was, you know, it was meant to be, but I also, you know, I was an athlete in university, so I never studied abroad. So I didn't have any kind of, living away experience like I'd never lived in a foreign country for an extended amount of time and I think for a lot of people when you tell them oh I moved to Ethiopia on a whim they're like wait Ethiopia that's one of the hardest countries <laughs> for westerners to adjust to because it's I mean the culture is completely different it, they don't have a lot of the western comforts that you know we're accustomed to so it was yeah it was crazy but I loved it loved every single minute yeah, I think it's, like, super, like, even more remarkable or just, like, interesting, I imagine, like, from going, from living in the States, like, I know you've traveled a bit, but, like, going to live just somewhere all together for, like, a whole new year, like, doing a job and, like, really being immersed. Um, can you talk a little bit about, like, your first impressions, like, first experiences of, like, living abroad? I know we were both... Um, for context, like, I was living abroad in Portugal at the same time, and so I think we were both going through that, like, learning curve, but in very different ways, and I think we were talking about, like, what it's like to culturally adjust, also, like, both going through a lot of, like, personal and, like, familial um, loss, and I think that was really helpful to have Sid bounce off and back and forth on, though Sid's internet connection was not always there, so I, like, tragically <laughs> could not connect as much as I had wanted to. So if you could just like talk about that a little bit, I would love to hear. Yeah. So before I moved, I was accustomed to traveling in Europe. So I'd been to a few European countries and I traveled to South America to Colombia. And so when I thought about being abroad, I sort of had a Western context to which I imagined. So for instance, like Leilani mentioned internet, Wi-Fi. I expected Wi-Fi to be everywhere. And 
it would always be stable and I could connect at any point in time. And in Ethiopia, that is simply not the case because they have a closed economy. Internet and data is very expensive. It's not, you know, it's not a commodity in the way that we treat it in most other, you know, developed countries. So that was probably the biggest shock that took some getting used to because <laughs> I, you know, you just, you want to FaceTime your friends or talk to your family or use WhatsApp. And, you know, most homes, I don't know the percentage of most homes don't have Wi-Fi or broadband. So you're reliant on maybe 4G, but network goes out all the time. So I would say that was a, that was a first impression. And then I don't know, there's so, that question is so, there's so much there, but another thing is the language. So it's really like English is not widely spoken well. And I, and I say that, and I, I want to put the emphasis on well, it's not that you can't communicate with people, but once someone finds out you don't speak Amharic, which is the language that's predominantly spoken in, in Addis, where I was, right, where I lived, they kind of, you know, struggle to speak to you with the English words they know. And then they just switch to Amharic and they just start speaking to you in Amharic and expect you to kind of understand what they're saying. And that to me was so bizarre. And, it, you know, and I studied French, so I have the, you know, the context of romantic languages, but this is an ancient language that comes from uh, the, the language of origin comes from Giz, which is from uh, the Bible, from Orthodox Christianity. Yeah, it's super old and very complicated. And the alphabet is not in traditional uh, Roman letters, right? So it's as a foreigner, you just you don't have anything. Like I had no context to understand. I was like, w I don't even <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> what is going on? So I think that was really hard. And, you know, as a Westerner, I expected that I could would I just expected I'd be able to easily communicate with folks. And that was not the case. So that was a big adjustment. And then I think the like religious nature of the country. So Ethiopia is about 48% Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox Christian, 48% Muslim and then between like three and four percent Jewish um, but the culture itself is very pious so even you know talking about going on dates is considered promiscuous or you know not living with your parents until you, you live at home until you're married and that's considered very standard if you live by yourself you're kind of a uh you know, like you're, you've gone rogue, you've abandoned the family and now you're out here on the, in the streets. And then even my friend said that, you know, she wanted to go to a coffee shop and read a book. And her father said, only prostitutes will go out in public by themselves and, and read a book. So you have this, this, this understanding of religion, the way that's conflated with how people spend their time during the day and what's considered either proper behavior or uh, just like how, what you can leave work for. Like people would leave work to go to church early. Like that was a very standard behavior. So I had never really been exposed to religion in a way that it is a part of the culture and not something that you opt into. It's the default. 
even though it's split between Muslim and Orthodox Christians, primarily, Jewish people are there, but I didn't interact with that many. So do you think those restrictions from religion can be equally observed among all different groups or there's more applied to certain group of people, such as women or, you know? I think more restrictions than women. So um, I learned a lot about Orthodox Christianity, but the big thing is similar to in Muslim religion. When you go into a, a church, you have to cover your head and women, they need to wear it. It's a white scarf. It's called a Nutella. You have to wear it in order to really be welcome in, in the church. And then also similar to other societies, rural societies, women don't really wear pants. They either wear skirts or, yeah, they wear skirts. <laughs> There's nothing else they wear. <laughs> they don't wear shorts. Shorts like, are not or... allowed. <laughs> <laughs> so during your time there, did you sort of live by their rules or your store? you are still living the way as you would um, normally do in America? I honestly adapted like none other. Like I really wanted, I was like, I don't people think I'm a prostitute. So then if I want to read a book, I would stay in my house. <laughs> but I think it's one of those things like Leilani, you were saying when you're getting, when you're adjusting to a culture and when you are, figuring out how people live and what your friends do and what's considered mm -hmm. normal. So reading a book in public by yourself is, is not a normal thing, but a friend calling you up randomly, like you're not, you didn't schedule a phone call, but they'll just call you and say, Hey, what are you doing? Do you want to meet uh, me and so-and-so at this meat barbecue place? We're going in 10 minutes. And it's like, okay, yeah, sure. I don't really have other plans. I'm going to join you. So I think, you know, you, I gave up some things that I enjoy doing. Like I love reading books and I also love running by myself and wearing a sports bra. And I love, uh, I don't know, like I love being an independent woman. And when you're, when I was in Ethiopia, I can't say I felt as comfortable doing those things, but I brought in a lot of new elements of life that I are not really American and I'm grateful that I had that experience. And so I gave the example of these spontaneous phone calls, which I love. Um, another example is coffee ceremonies. So coffee's really big and it's not like the big American gulping cups that we have here, but it's a very special ceremony in which the beans are roasted in front of you and you smell the coffee and there's incense and you have popcorn. It's, you know, it takes about an hour and coffee is, you know, like you go and you have a coffee, but it's more about enjoying the people that you're with in the conversation and less about getting this caffeine because I can't keep my eyes open. And so that is something that I really have grown to appreciate. Yeah, I think, well, that's first of all, very lovely to hear. And then second, I just feel like living in the States um, and also just like growing up in Beijing, I feel like society is changing so much and everyone's care about how our economy is doing. But then we lost a lot of the simple pleasures that we got to enjoy before. Like, for example, having a meal with a family or like just really put your heart into creating a meal and share with people that you love. I totally, totally agree. And I... I, the thing that I 
that really I loved about Addis and I loved about Ethiopia is it's a simple pleasure. So I think a lot of Westerners would come and say, wow, this country is very poor. You all don't have a lot of the comforts that I would expect. You don't have regular Wi-Fi. The government sometimes shuts down the internet. So they, they just got out of internet um, shutdown a few weeks ago. I, you don't have running water or electricity all the time. So their power grid is primarily um, powered by water. And when I was there, there was a rain shortage and it's rain fed water. So there was a rain shortage and the government had to ration electricity. So for about two months, you know, half the city wouldn't have power for half the day. And so, and that was normal. And then uh, like buying a car is very expensive. So a car that costs $15,000 in the US would cost at least $60,000 there once, once you pay the taxes. And so having a car is not normal. You have to take public transportation. And so all these things that, you know, I think a Westerner would, a Westerner would look at and say, oh, wow, you guys, like, how can you be happy? But then you go there and it's the smallest, simplest pleasures that bring some, a smile on someone's face, whether that's coffee or having fresh honey. So I worked with honey farmers and we would often sit in a farmer's house and eat honey from a comb that they got from the hive. And we would just sit there and eat it in our hand, like licking from our hand, <laughs> enjoying the honey. <laughs> <laughs> having homemade beer, someone making you a meal. They have, uh, I don't know if people have ever had Ethiopian food, but it's served on injera and they put several, you know, small portions of different things and, you know, eat with your hands and you have it together. And whenever you have a meal, it's all about who you're with because you can't look at your phone because you're eating with your hands and, and it's always a communal activity. So having a great meal is something that we like you just grow to love and appreciate and it's beautiful oh this is like food for the soul during quarantine just like being reminded of those little moments so Sid I'm curious to know whether you felt you know happier or just simply more at home or just more comfortable in yourself uh, when you were in Ethiopia I think so I think so, but I, I will say a caveat being, so for the listeners, I am Black American and Ethiopia is a country that was never colonized. Um, and they're very proud of the fact that they were never colonized. They were occupied for a couple of years by Italy, but they were never officially an Italian um, colony. And so they have a very different relationship to, they call them foreigners, but really it's anyone who's white. So you're either Chinese because there's a lot of Chinese investment. So there are Chinese people, which is really anyone who's Asian. So they're, you know, it's not very specific. <laughs> there are foreigners who's anyone, anyone that's white. And then if you're like me and you're black American and, um, you know, I, I'm not very dark, like some sub-Saharan African um, folks, but I'm, you know, kind of a medium caramel complexion and I just fit in. And so they look at me and they say, oh, wow, you're Habesha. And I say, no, I'm American. I'm not Habesha. I'm not Ethiopian. And because I, you know, I don't know the culture. It's not something that I grew up with. And they say, no, 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 no. You, you're Habesha. Like, you just don't know it. Have you asked your grandparents? And I say, no, yes, I, I tell you, I'm not Habesha. But I think going somewhere and feeling so 
unabashedly and warmly welcome, regardless of where I came from, regardless of my experience. I am a part of the culture. You see me and I can be myself. And even when I tell you I'm not a part of you, you tell me, yes, you are. You are welcome here. You're one of us, you're home. And I think that has really given me the confidence to enter into my life in a way that makes me feel comfortable and makes me feel seen. And also, I'm not, not that I was ever afraid to be different, but I feel like I can be even more of myself. And I know that, that that's okay. And I'm going to be welcome in, in any circle or any culture. So that was, that was nice. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing all these beautiful memories. And I definitely relate to a lot of them, just like um, reflecting on my experience travel by myself. I receive a lot of kindness and love from strangers, and it was just all really great memories. But I was wondering whether you um, ran into any challenges while being abroad on your um, by yourself or just like through traveling, you know, alone. Um, yes, I do. And I've actually never, so before this trip, I'd never traveled anywhere alone, unless it was for work. And when you travel for work, you know, there's an ecosystem to help protect you. So this was the first time that I actually moved somewhere different. I didn't know anyone. I was by myself. And I would say I became kind of paranoid about certain things. I had a scary experience. So I think in my first or second week there, they they have an Uber-like service. Um, it's called Ride. And I got into a ride and the driver um, just kept telling me how beautiful I was. And he was so happy that I got into his car and was just going on and on and asked me, asked if he could take me out for a beer during the, our ride. And I said, no, just take me back to my house, right? You know, I need you to drop me off. And he said, Oh, no, but this is really special time. I really want to take you out. I feel so I'm so lucky that you're in my car. You're so beautiful. And I said, No, please take me home. But finally, you know, he ended up basically kidnapping me. So he wouldn't drop me off at my house. He proceeded on the route to this bar that I'd never been to. He forced me to have two beers with him. And, you know, I, tr I tried to drink as, drink as quickly as possible. He tried to kiss me. I said, no, I'm not kissing you. I finally convinced him to drop me off at home. And then after that incident, I made sure that someone knew where I was at every point, all points in time. So my on my iPhone, either my location was always on and it was shared with someone. I told people where I was going. I had a few close friends there. I let them know where I was going. I turned SOS on on my phone. I updated all my contacts, updated my health information, made sure that that was all ready to go just in case. And, you know, something terrible happened. And then I also never went places by myself unless I had to. So I would go to the supermarket by myself, but I wouldn't say that I would go to a restaurant and eat by myself, or I would um, go to a bar and have a drink by myself. I you know, if I was out, I was with someone else. If I'm in my home, I can be my, by myself. So those are sort of the the steps that I had to take. And I, I do feel grateful that I sort of conditioned myself in this way because I, I do think it kept me safe. Oh, and I also didn't, I never got drunk. If I, like, the altitude's very high in Addis, I think 6,000 or 7,000 feet. So you can get drunk pretty easily. 
and I never got drunk. I always made sure my wits were about me in case I had to leave hurriedly or I knew where I was. And so I, I didn't do that while I was there. But I, I feel more prepared for life after that. I do. So I think you're very brave in um, sharing this experience and definitely like I know what you're talking about because um, two years ago when I was in South Africa, um, I was a crime survivor. Well, I am a crime survivor um, and I also experienced sexual assault and it's just like a really weird feeling that, you know, people stare at you like animals and um, and like touch you. Just because they've never seen you like that, and you're just like, like what's happening? And it was awful. It was definitely awful. I'm sorry you had a bad experience. That's it. Just you hate to hear it, right? I I know what happens, but it's just so hard when, like, I like to think that we're all good people, but sometimes bad things happen to good people, and it kind it can change your entire life. But it sounds like you're you've grown from it, and you're okay. Yeah, I mean, now um, the situation is so much better. I'm not there anymore, but, you know, like, it's experience that I can't erase from my mind, and it still, it still haunts me from time to time. But um, I'm really lucky to um, develop ways um, and a support network to help me overcome um, those tough periods when it hit me back. Anyways, I'm really curious about your experience as an athlete and what does it mean um, to be an athlete for you? <laughs> uh, such a crazy time. So I was, you know, I was a pretty good division one athlete and I was, you know, like, <laughs> would you like to elaborate on that? Sid? No, I was all, please do not sell yourself short. It's on your LinkedIn profile. We were stalking you the other day. I was like, Oh, she has one of those plaques like up at Duke now because she won the four by eight relay. <gasps> Hello. Uh, okay, let me not be humble. So I was several time All American, and I held the school record at Duke for eight hundred meters, and I won my conference championship two times. And my college team and I, we won a one of the they, it's called it's like the world rec the the national. World Championship for Relays. It's called Pen Relays. It happens every year. We won one year um, that I was on the team. So it was, I had, I had a great college career. And when I graduated, I wasn't, I didn't, I felt like I had more. So I wanted to continue running. So that's why I took the professional track. And it, it was hard. Honestly, it was really hard. I thought that I was going to improve a lot. I thought that I could train the same way I trained in university and I would see that I would get the same results. And what I found is that it requires a level of discipline and tenacity and self-confidence that I did not possess at that point in time. I was very um, easily persuaded by what my coaches told me. And I was in a program where the coach is quite negative and he told me I was fat all the time and I need to lose weight and that I was. <laughs> it's not appropriate. And as a male coach and he was older and, and it was, it was, yeah, it was harmful. He was, yes, he was white and it was harmful to me and hurtful. And it made me think about my athleticism in a new way. And so previously my other, 
you know, my college coach told me, so you can make an Olympic team if you want. You just need to dedicate and commit yourself to this. And this is, this is possible for you. You have the talent naturally. Um, and so that was kind of my mindset. And that's what I expected would happen once I committed. And it was anything but the case. And I actually ended up in this terrible cycle of disordered eating and thinking that I needed to do more and always wanting to be the most disciplined person. So sleeping for nine hours a night and stretching for this long every day and getting my massage and doing my vitamins. And it became like, uh, I was living within, living within the confines of an Excel sheet, I would say, and I wasn't really living my life. And so I didn't improve at all. Actually, I didn't run faster than I did in university. I, when I retired, I'd had an injury that I, I, I nursed an injury for like six months or something. And at the end of that, I decided, you know, I can't, I need something different. My body is telling me that it's, it's time. Like I just, I can't do this anymore or at least right now. And yeah, I had, I begrudgingly hung up my spikes and said, it's time for me to call it quits now. But to answer your question, as an athlete, I still consider myself an athlete. I still consider myself a runner. And one of the things that made Ethiopia and Addis feel more comfortable for me is that I was able to do the thing that I love. So I, I could run in the morning. I had to get up at 6 and run before or 5.30 and run before the pollution was really bad and the cars were on the road and people were commuting. But I would get up and run and I felt safe. I could do it. I found a yoga studio that I loved and I went every Saturday and sometimes during the week and it was amazing that I found that community and that, you know, those are the small things that helped me to adjust to life there and it helped me to get back to the, to who I am at my core, which is an athlete and which is moving around and just pushing my body and doing things that make me feel strong, just, you know, just in my, in my in my muscles and my body and I say that because you know I don't want to discredit people who like to play basketball or who play um, soccer or do sports with balls like it's great <laughs> you do that yeah like you do that but like I'm over here running as hard as I can with just these like legs that I was born <laughs> with and that's all and there's something about that that makes me feel so good so good I I would interpret it as like self-empowerment. I don't know whether you would agree, but I definitely feel self-empowerment when I'm biking that I can just pedal with my leg and I can go as fast as possible. I have total control of how fast I go and it just feels so great. It's, it's amazing, right? It's like, wow, I, I produce all of this power. This came from me. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I love it so much. Um, Actually, recently I've been thinking about, you know, female power and I think people sometimes emphasize too much on, I don't know, intellectual like work equality and stuff like that. But I think physical power is also really important and is actually the thing that you always have because <laughs> you are with your body. Like this is literally the thing that you have all the time. So I think. Yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this, but I just want to say that was physical no. power. It means a lot, yeah. I, I totally agree. And I honestly, I think it's one of the 
one of the, my character traits that protected me some in Ethiopia because a lot of women don't exercise. Exercise is not, I'm mean, not just say women, people in general, they don't exercise. It's not a part of the culture. It is, you know, I think Ethiopia is known for their runners. And while you do see runners in the more rural parts of the country and the capital, it's either inaccessible because it's too expensive or people are working too much. They don't have the time. And so I think when you are self-empowered, either if you're getting it from athletics or you're getting it from, you know, some other spiritual practice or just because you've spent a lot of time building yourself up, you carry yourself differently in the world. And I think it does ward off a lot of the cat calls and a lot of the, not a lot, some of the cat calls, I'm not going to say all, some of the cat calls, some of the people who may be abrasive or violent towards you, um, because they can look at you and they there's something different they can sense oh that person oh she she's not she's not going to put up with this she is either going to run away she's going to kick me she's going to do something that that actually is, is dangerous to, for my health and so i'm not going to get near her and i don't and i'm not saying that to say that women are inviting those, that behavior when it happens to them no definitely not but i just think you move through the world differently when you are self-empowered and that's why I so I believe so strongly in athletics and so strongly in doing things that make you feel great in your skin because I think it, it just helps to lift us all up and it helps us to be that version of ourselves that we, you know that we want to be all the time and it helps us to garner respect from others. I have like one maybe it's a final question for you, Sid. I don't want to keep you too long, but something that I've been thinking about, like you talked about the experience of like being on your own and building your own community. Um, if you're comfortable sharing, there's sort of, like, two parts to this that I'd love for you to, like, think about. Um, just, like, how, how did you deal with family being so far away during, like, your time in Audis? Um, and what was it like bringing in, I know your mom came to visit you, so, like, what was it like for you to bring her into, like, this space and, like, this new home that you had created or sort of, like, bringing her into that world, maybe, um, I'd be, yeah, I'd really love to hear sort of your thoughts on, and now that you've had some time to reflect in the past year and, like, being physically back in St. Louis, like, what that felt like for you. Oh, those are good questions. So, um, Le- yeah, Leilani, you mentioned we had, we both experienced a lot of loss last year and a lot of grief. So I, my cousin was, my cousin and I'm really close to thought of her as a sister. She was tragically killed by a drunk driver about three months into my time in Addis. And it was, it, it rocked me to my core in a way that I didn't, I just, I didn't know how powerful grief could be. I'd experienced a grief of heartbreak of, you know, someone rejecting me and feeling that, that grief. But when you, when someone is taken from you out of this world, at a time that you're, you don't expect them to leave and you don't know why they were taken from you and you were trying to make sense of it. And you know, you're praying or you're you know, pulling tarot cards or you're journaling, you're, you're using all the tools that are available to you. Anything that, you, that makes you feel better, you're trying to make sense of it. And honestly, you can't, you can't. Like grief is something that you, you I, don't, I don't think we can fully grasp. We don't, it's one of these emotions that is just meant to help us get to know ourselves 
and I think help us get to know other people because grief is not something that we experience alone. It is certainly not, we're not, we're not meant to feel this in isolation. And so being away from family and having that level of grief was hard. It was really, really hard. And while I wanted to talk to my family as much as I could, internet was an issue. I couldn't really talk to them. And so, you know, I know I just said that grief isn't something that you experience alone, but I did spend a lot of time alone processing my grief and trying to move through it and journal and, you know, pray to my cousin's spirit and talk to her whenever I could. And those you know, those things brought me comfort. And I also, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable actually relying on my friends and sharing these darker, more, I don't know, just sad realities of life. Like I, I, death is a sad reality of life. And I didn't really feel comfortable to, to burden them with that responsibility. And so I didn't, you know, I didn't put that on, on them. But what I used my friends for instead was for joy. And, you know, we've talked about this a lot, like joy is very important and, you know, living a healthy life and feeling gratitude and, and, you know, smiling each day. And so my friends became this, this, uh, like fountain of joy that really helped to hold me up. And yeah, maybe I would go home and cry a lot at night, but during the day or at dinner, I had a lot of joy and I had a lot of laughs and I had a lot of smiles and that really helped me throughout the year. It really helped me. Um, and then I was grateful that I, I did get to come home for the, for the funeral and I got to come back in September for, to see my family and that helped to sustain me a, a little bit and having that physical connection to them. I think that really sort of solidified, not solidified, but continued to help me move through the grief. And I'm still moving through it, but having those those connections was a good checkpoint. And then having my mom come visit was absolutely amazing. I was so nervous. My, my mom is well-traveled. She's traveled to China a couple of times. She's been to Singapore, she's been to Europe. So she's well-traveled, but she's never been to the continent of Africa. And I don't know, I was really nervous if she was going to like it, if she was going to feel comfortable, if she was, going to you know think that it was an okay life for me and so when she came I had I had to have a lot of anxiety I was like oh I hope the bed is nice enough and you know we have enough food and she's not start you know I just all these things you want to make your mom feel comfortable and she wasn't comfortable at first and that's okay <laughs> she really wasn't comfortable but and you know I, I learned to work to talk to her and figure out, okay, what it, what about this is not comfortable? Okay, you feel anxiety when we're when we're walking around. All right, well, let's try to take a cab more places, or let's let me try, explain the surroundings so maybe you feel a bit more adjusted to life here. Um, and so, you know, that was a learning experience, but being able to experience the country together and experience the food and the coffee and you know, the Nutella and the, the greeting. So there's something else I did in like the, the way that Ethiopians greet each other is so beautiful. So before you have any conversation, first, you know, you say, how are you? And they say, how are you back? And you say, well, how was your family? And then they say, oh, my family's good. How was your family? 
And then you say, okay, but really like, is God treating you well? And then you say, yeah, God's treating me well. Is God treating you well? And so this goes on, it's kind of, it's long. And then at the end you say, oh, thanks to God. And then you start your conversation. So I think like explaining these beautiful moments to her and really ex us experiencing the culture together. Cause it's, I was by no means an expert, but I had figured out a few things that was so fun. And then we, so we had the time in the city and then we went on this hike together in the North part of the country. And I had forgotten that my mom is afraid of heights. I really just slipped my mind. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> so we're climbing up this mountain. <laughs> it's like, I mean, it, it really we're climbing a mountain. Like the farmers are using this to get up and down from the from the lowland to the highland because they grow different crops. So the you know we're taking these small paths that only the farmers and their goats and their camels just take up. And um, yeah, she's having panic attacks. Like I think at, we hiked for three days and each day she had a panic attack and I felt really bad because I thought, oh no, you didn't sign up for this. But we grew a lot during that time and the views were amazing. Our guide was so kind. He had jokes for days. The food was incredible. We stayed in these, their village run community, village run huts. They kind of operate as hotels. So they, you know, they prepared our meals for us and they taught us to do some of the dances there. So they have very specific dances that they like to do. And then we're in a region called Tigray. They have a um, this like circle dance that they do. So they toss through the circle dance and, you know, all in all, it was, it was great. And my mom, we still joke about it today. Like, oh, you hated me for taking you on that hike with, where you had the paying attacks. But I was like, but you love it. You're so happy you did it, right? And she's like, yeah, I'm so happy I did it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I just think that you're such a role model, as Lay said, because you've experienced a lot. Like, I'm not going to lie. I think I also have experienced what grief is like and what it means to, like, what trauma means, especially experience trauma at a young age. Um, but I think I'm also trying to learn to embrace it and to look on the positive side. So very lucky to have connected to folks you two are like. No, so just really want to say that we are all very, very, very strong women, and <laughs> it is not easy. But we have overcome adversity, which requires a fucking lot of power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm so happy to see you two being so positive and sharing all these beautiful, like, kindness, love, and joy to other people. And it just makes me love the world so much when I see people like you guys. <laughs> the world is a beautiful place, and the world loves you back. <laughs> There's so much love in the world. That's so amazing. Well, we well, can wrap it up a little bit. I guess, though, the name of this podcast is Where to Go Next. Sid, where are you going next? Oh, my goodness. I cannot wait because I haven't caught up with you, Lay. So, yes. So I'm planning to stay in international development, which I could have a, another podcast about my feelings in international development because I have so many thoughts. 
<laughs> we didn't even touch that. However, I am feeling like there is a path to change. And I, I, I don't want to discount or discredit international development. I do think there, there are opportunities to grow and there are opportunities to connect with different community members. So I am interviewing for a position in Uganda for a program manager for another nonprofit in, in agriculture. So it'd be a program working with around 20,000 smallholder farmers doing cocoa and honey farming. Um, and I would be able to run my program and make it community-based and really talk to the farmers that we hope to serve and plan to serve and get a better understanding of what they need and what they're looking for so that we can target our project funds in a way that really benefits them and doesn't actually um, contribute to these uh, non-circular and unsustainable poverty cycles that I think a lot of NGOs are unfortunately the the you know they perpetrate this so quite excited Sid, that is amazing that is such exciting news i really can't wait So Sid, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about sort of what your expectations of Ethiopia were going in and maybe how those changed over time. So I didn't really have any expectations about Ethiopia. Like I said, I didn't know anything about it. And when I moved there, I thought, oh, it's just, you know, I'm just going to move there and everything's going to be fine. And maybe that was naive of me to think, I'm going to move to a foreign country and everything's going to be fine. But that's really how I thought of it. And so I was a blank slate. I, of course, I talked to people and they kind of gave me, they, I would say, warned me about how challenging life could be. And so perhaps I had an expectation that was going to be so hard there. But then I didn't want to impose that on this, you know, African country. I said, let me not listen to them. People have their own perspective. People can experience things in the ways they want to experience them. And just because someone else maybe thought it was a challenging environment to live in, doesn't mean that has to be my reality. So I really went in with an open mind. And I think that helped a lot because I was able to take things in and really focus on assimilating with the culture, really focused on appreciating all the beautiful and unique and niche things about Ethiopian um, history and just the beautiful parts of their, I, I would call it in some ways really pristine culture because they, they've never been colonized. And a lot of it is kept 
you know, it's maintained its nature over time in a, in a way that I haven't experienced in other countries in Africa. So that was really, really, really cool. And then how it's changed. So I'm back in the US and I've been here for a little bit and there's some unrest in Ethiopia right now. So there's some ethnic conflict. The government shut the internet down for three weeks to stem the the violent protest and the rebellions that that were going on. And so honestly, when I was there, I think I would have felt, oh yeah, the government, they have to shut the internet down or else, you know, it's going to be more unrest and more violence. Makes sense. But now that I'm on the outside and I'm not in I'm not in Ethiopia, I think, wow, it's really autocratic and very like authoritarian for them to turn the internet off. That's not fair. People cannot communicate with their family members abroad. They cannot access Western information. They cannot share their stories about what is going on and maybe what they're experiencing, um, either at the hands of the government or at the hands of these various uh, rebel groups that were going around the country. So I think, you know, I think that Ethiopia has a beautiful story and be beautiful history. I think that there's a lot of challenges in the country, especially with respect to their um, their journey towards democracy. They've never had a democratic election, and this was supposed to be the first year that they held one. And you know, it's interesting to be in the middle of that. Like, it's interesting to experience democracy, what democracy feels like for the first time. The country is not accustomed to it, so. It's changing, and I think there are some things that they need definitely need to improve on if they want to develop or be Western. I'm not. They don't. I don't think they need to go that path. But it feels like every country in Africa is striving towards this Western ideal. Why I don't know, but that's what they're aiming for. And I, yeah, I don't. I don't really think it'll work for them. But it, they have to. Rec they have to reconcile that for themselves. They have to decide that we want to do things like. Ethiopians, not like what Americans would do or what the Chinese would do. This is our culture. These are our people. This is not a question that you had wanted me to ask you um, and not on the record, but like, do you think or like you coming back happened to coincide sort of like A, with coronavirus and B, with like resurgence of Black Lives Matter and um the like similarly like unrest in the u.s like do you think your time abroad has affected at all like how you see those grapplings in the u.s like how you identify not identify but like how you are perceiving like the movement here as well or or like just like your grapplings with like do you want to be in the states anymore etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah so i think there's a lot of ways I could answer this question, but the first thing that comes to mind is when I moved to Ethiopia, I never felt more American than I felt when I was there. And that was a very interesting realization for me to have. One, because everyone kept telling me that I was Habesha, which is the, you know, one of the ethnic names for Ethiopians. And I was like, no, I'm American. I don't know what you're talking about. And then the second was I was actually in a culture that I did not know anything about, literally had no concept of it, could not speak the language, did not know the dances, did not know the foods, could not prepare any of the meals, just 
it was something that was foreign to me. Even a lot of the mannerisms and the way that you talk to people, I, I, I wasn't privy to. And so I, I felt like an outsider in ways that I had never felt in the US. And while yes, in the US, we are outsiders as people of color, as women of color, we are not what people expect. We're not the norm. And I have felt like I've been excluded from some situations, but I also felt like there was a path for me to, to move there. Like I could, if I say the right thing, if I act the right way, if I network with the right people, I can be in that place and I can understand what, what they're experiencing. And so I felt I got closer to my American identity while I was there and in a way that it, it feels weird to say like, yeah, I'm an American. I, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm proud to be an American, but that is my cultural understanding. And that is how I take in the world. It's how I consume the news. It's how I think about my friendships. It's all with this Americanism, capitalism backdrop. And so coming back to the US and having this um, reformed or renewed relationship to my American identity, and then being thrust into Black Lives Matter and into you know our president and his the incitement of violence and the way that he is pulling us apart as an American people, I really feel compelled to be a part of the movement. So I am very grateful that I've been able to attend protests and sign petitions and call state representatives and write letters. Like I really try to make sure that I'm participating in the ways that I'm able to, because I don't intend to be in the US for a long period of time. And I don't intend for the US to be my home base. So I need to take advantage while I'm here. And it, you know, it, yeah, it's again, another blessing, right? I'm like, wow, I'm really lucky that I'm here during this time, because this is a unique and profound time in our, in our historical understanding of, of, of race in the United States. And I feel like we are witnessing history. We don't know what's going to happen, but this is a historical moment. This is Gab, and thanks for staying tuned to our episodes because I know it's been forever since we pushed stuff out. So Leia started a life in um, law school, and I moved back home and started a new life as well. So it's been um, quite a lot for both of us to keep up with it. But we really wanted to push this episode out because the conversation was rather meaningful, and the stories were very intimate um, to the three of us, but also. Um, the things that we, exp- uh, that we talk about, what we've experienced in this episode were um, major life um, events that more or less change our directions a little bit or um, are still affect our life in major ways. And um, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, I, I guess like people more or less experience hardships in their lives and um, I've definitely felt like, oh, it was the worst of my life. Um, how am I going to get through this? But um, you never know. You know, people are sometimes kinder than you expected. And the strength and courage that you have in your heart is just beyond your imagination. 
So I wanted to devote this episode into celebrating International Women's Day, especially although it's um, two days later. But still, um, props to all the women out there. You're very strong, and um, you got this for whatever you're doing. Um, and I hope you'll have a very beautiful life. Thank you, guys. I will see you in the next one.